alien spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 120th annual Subliminal Ascension Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm joined by my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Okay, it, it, it's been nice. It's uh, it, It's been whatever. We've been dealing with the uh, Canadian smoke. I need to make a correction on that there. Uh, we are currently... Everybody, you know, we're getting ready for football season. Football is my favorite season. I think it's probably your favorite yeah. sports season as well. And, you know, just like off the air, you were talking about how excited the state of Arizona is for you got a loaded team. You got a lot of good players. Vikings are in the same boat, too, right? We're all excited. We're like, okay, we signed all these people. Hopefully they're good. Hopefully they work out. Hopefully the defense returns to being nasty. And then you have literal <laughs> walking coronavirus himself. In the name of Kirk Cousins, who is trying to actively sabotage his team. And I wish we could get rid of him, but we cannot get rid of him. Um, yes. I believe everyone's hoping that Cousins actually gets coronavirus so that he doesn't play for a few weeks. And then possibly the backup maybe excels. The, honestly, the backup wouldn't even have to do that good to catch a starting job. No. You got an amazing running back. Just give him the fucking ball. Do the play actions. Justin Jefferson, I've been hearing a lot of pop about him. Like, he's just, like, he was insanely good last year, and, like, this year he just feels on a different level. That's what everybody keeps saying when they're watching him. Like, he's really mm. dialed in this year, so I have a feeling he's going to be insanely good. So, yeah, I don't know. We got a lot of hope, and I and I, told, I said this, and everybody in the state has been saying this, is <laughs> we're going to have the most Viking things ever, where it's either they're in the playoffs or they're like one game from getting in the playoffs and Kirk Cousins <laughs> gets coronavirus or something and misses a game and spreads it to his teammates and it's just like, it's going to happen. They miss the game that would have put them into the wild yep. card game. Yep. Yeah, I can see that happening. The most Viking season. Yep. And he'll just say, you know what? That's just what Jesus wanted. <laughs> you know what? Actually, yeah. speaking of that, so we've been at, at work we've been looking at like cringy t-shirts man if you type in jesus t-shirts on like amazon or just google it there are some real attention getters we'll just call them that really yeah you'll have to show me some i'll I'll post them on the instagram oh my god but did you did you see the one where it's like i'm protected by the blood of jesus christ (laughs) i was born in august Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Oh, I saw your God. post on that. Yeah. So bad. Oh, my God. Dude, the, uh, funny t-shirts. They're pretty good. Yeah. I will. I'm mostly a uh, blue jeans and black t-shirt, you know, when I go to work. So, well, right now it's shorts because it's 115 out. But, yeah, it would be great to wear some funny t-shirts. The problem is you can't wear too controversial of a shirt. Uh, it is Arizona still. So, you got to kind of dial it back when you're, you know, 
you work your pro game, so. You're right. Like, you couldn't be wearing a Bernie Sanders shirt or something like that. No. Well, I mean, if somebody <laughs> on the street sees you wearing a Bernie Sanders shirt in Phoenix, you might get shot. So <laughs> They're not too fond of uh, of anyone, you know, wearing so, any, any, any liberal shirt. So, so there, there's the Instagram handle. I think it's, like, called Shirts of Vietnam or something. <laughs> it is... <laughs> I think it's donated t-shirts that they get in Vietnam and they po- they like post how ridiculous they are. One was like I'm the swine master of Texas. I I kill every wild boar I see. Like it was like on and on and I'm like what the fuck is this shirt? Don't make well I'm honestly I've I had a friend uh, when I was enlisted who is from texas and he talked about the problem they have with boars out there yeah and they are doing fucking god's work killing those vermin like it is yeah it, they are bad they will destroy entire fields like they were yeah it's just fucking terrible basically the hunting season for boar never ends and it's just t- kill as many as you want and yeah. it, it needs to be like that because it, it's bad it's basically like comparing it to where i live it's kind of like People from Wisconsin. Yeah. Like they exactly. just kind of, they're an invasive species. They come in, they dig in your gardens, they dig up everything, they steal your fruit. Uh, it, it's just not good. You got to get them out of here. Yeah. And just like boar, wild boar, they are illiterate. Right. So, and they yep. do, they, they have been known to inbreed. Yes. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, we gonna we gotta talk about something here real quick before we get into the beautiful episode here. Uh, Phil and I we we've kind of been talking about our Patreon. I think we've got kind of an idea we're gonna test out. We're going to be kind of giving a breakdown and walkthrough slash review of uh, movies movies that you probably I'm gonna assume probably won't watch on your own. We'll do that for you. Now, we can't we're not going to enlist the title of our first one. Phil picked it out and I'll just say oof da. Oof da. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm I hope it's a film student's movie to be honest <laughs> with you. That's the one thing I can say. Honestly, if it was a film student's movie, like really good job. I mean, yeah. You yeah. get a B minus for me on that one. As far as if it was like a professional job, no. You're you're dragging down the class, kid. Just maybe go take a lap. Yeah, but yeah, it, 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 it's terribly bad, but terribly good in a, the same way kind of deal. One of those movies. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we're gonna give it a shot. I think it's gonna go pretty, pretty solid. You'll probably see that dropping in the next week or two. And Phil, uh, he just notified me he might have a bonus episode coming in the near future, covering a topic that is what? What are the words you you used, Phil? Uh, it's a little, uh, it's a little too divisive, a little yeah. too hot for the the regular stream. So, got to put it on the back channel where uh, where most of the people can't hear it. You know, you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. You don't. Well, I mean, it's one of those deals where the negative reviews would probably sink the ship. You know, yeah. if you just people seeing the title. So right, right. But it's uh, you can be very controversial on your Patreon because only the uh, true diehards. Sign up for yes. Patreon, Subliminal Deception. No, sorry. Patreon.com slash Subliminal Deception. You can find us on there. Well, Phil, we've been jarring enough here. Let's, uh, you take us on a journey. I'm excited for what you got in store for us. All right, let's get started. 
To be in the position of president of the United States, the highest office in the land, takes more than just the small list of requirements, 35 years of age or older, having resided in the United States for more than 14 years, and of course, a born American, with, of course, the exception of a certain reptilian time traveler from Ken. Well, the the whole time travel thing with him kind of puts a little wrench in in that order because when you're dealing with time travel, you then, like, say the 14-year-old or 14 years as a resident there, does that qualify by if you traveled back in time and you were in that time period for 14 years but then came back, but in present time you weren't there actually for 14 years, does that still qualify him to be president? That is true. And, I mean, maybe he wasn't born in America, but if you're a 1,000 years old and you've been living in America for the entire, you know, span of American history, wouldn't you be pretty much, you know, the full American? So, I guess so. See, this is like like some fucking uh, Zack Snyder-level (laughs) time-traveling complicated shit right here. So, maybe he'll make a movie about the reptilian time travel and answer that for us like he did with Interstellar, but uh, we do not have those answers. No, no, we do not. However, it takes more than just that small list to make the cut above all others. Strength and leadership, courage and conviction, integrity, poise, intelligence, and the ability to make believers out of skeptics are all needed to ascend the political ladder, race through the gauntlet of scrutiny, and claim the hardest and most coveted job in America. Also, Breeding and allegiances help a lot. They go a long way. Here's the thing I've kind of noticed, and obviously I have no idea how one would maneuver through these groups and circles, but it seems like there's a lot of wheel greasing that's got to be going on if you want to like get in the political power groups. Yes, and it seems like also if you kind of look back at a lot of the president's Someone early on, like during your college years, kind of has to introduce you as a future important person, like almost like, oh, yes, this person could be president of the United States. You know, it's one of those deals where you're almost destined from the start of your adulthood to become this higher office person. Or some people even are born into families like the Bushes, the Kennedys, where they already have the power structure in place to kind of ascend into you know, what's almost pre like predestined for them. Unless you're Jeb Bush, then you're, you know, <laughs> well, was, you're just Jeb Bush. I was gonna, Honestly, he was born with that name. It doesn't help. Really. Yeah. He, if he isn't a tow, a tow truck operator, I don't, I don't He really shouldn't <laughs> be in any sort of political office. Uh, I was going to say like Mitt Romney, I'm assuming some ghost gave him his magical underwear in the middle of the day and said, son, you're going to be president one day, just like Joseph Smith. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, luckily, Joseph Smith was not president. You know, like, probably dodged a bullet there, maybe. Uh, he probably would have loved to be. Oh, yeah. Well, we would all be Mormon right now. We'd all be wearing magic underwear. So, uh, Yeah. Anyway, continue on. What if, however, someone who possessed few, if any of those qualities actually made it, but... They just fucking wanted it more, more than anyone else, and was willing to do everything, say anything, and promise whatever they needed to, to win. Win over the support of the American people, just enough to sit in that most famous of houses and rule behind the desk 
in the coveted Oval Office. Well, wonder no more, for today we will discuss the life, legacy, and sheer determination of a man that outworked all the rest and became the 37th President of the United States, as today's episode is on the history and possible myths of Richard Milhouse Nixon. Powerful middle name, by the way. Yes. Um, so you- it was also his mother's middle name, actually. This is a sexy name for a lady. Um, yep. So you're saying right now he willed himself into the presidential. Well, yeah, I mean, into the political sphere. I'm, I'm going to go into it a lot, but okay. it was sheer will. Determined as a motherfucker. Anyone who was born in his position of his means in that family, in that place, wouldn't like no one else could have turned that into American presidency. He just worked. He just fucking wanted it like okay. more than anyone else. It's a, it's actually amazing. Most people who become president, you know, they're kind of got the whole silver spoon thing or they had just this charisma that kind of won people over and, you know, they won over allies and they kind of subdued their enemies. Like Nixon just fucking wanted it. Right. Okay, so he's got like the uh, LeBron, MJ, Tom Brady willpower. Yeah, well, I mean, LeBron has like a lot of natural gifts. And like, obviously, he works, you know, like a crazy person on his game, but kind of more like Tom Brady, just how he doesn't doesn't really have the natural gifts, but he just worked it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Works it as hard as he can. Keeps his body just, I don't know how, how he does it. But he's got like one of those barometric fucking uh, beds in his room, maybe. And he just keeps himself young that way. But yeah, if it was a football or a basketball player, he would definitely be like one of those guys that's always on the gym floor, always watching film, you know, never goes out and parties. He's not the Charles Barkley type. He's not, you know, just out in fucking Scottsdale, just killing it. He's, you know, watching fucking film, practicing, doing the work. Nixon, honestly, for all the bad shit I'm going to talk about him, I got to say, he did the fucking work. And I'm going to get into it like later on, but it is crazy how hard he worked. Okay, one quick question, and you don't have to answer if you're going to talk about it later. Does that mean that his powerful upper lip sweat was actually like a magical substance that gives him all this power? It maybe was able to kind of disperse some of his enemies, like keep okay. his enemies off of his back. What if this it is like might po- have had magical powers. Powerful pheromones. Could be, <laughs> yes. It attracts grumpy old politicians. That's what it does. Yes. That five o'clock shadow might have actually been like a magic, like, like a superhero's cape, possibly. Right, right. All right. We'll continue on about Mr. Millhouse here. All right, we'll just uh, start at the end quick, then jump to the beginning. So on August 8th, 1974, the regularly scheduled television broadcast was interrupted when President Nixon addressed the nation, announcing his intention to resign his position in an attempt, supposedly, to heal the wounds and divisions of the country, which just so happened to be at the same time that he was under investigation and facing impeachment hearings for his and his administration's role in the Watergate scandal. The next day, August 9th, at noon, 12 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, Richard Nixon, along with his wife and family, stepped onto Marine One for the last time, smiling and waving to his supporters, even flashing the peace sign. 
as he turned and boarded the helicopter, creating one of the most iconic images of the 20th century and signaling an end of an era, not only to the Nixon administration, but to a time when the office of president was held in the highest esteem, no matter the man that occupied it. So this is the picture where his neck like basically disappears, right? Yes. Yep. He's got his shoulders way up high up to his ears and he kind of like double waves to the crowd and gives them all the peace sign, kind of like a rock star, you know, like a rock star who's just, you know, hasn't slept for three days, just flying on Coke and whiskey and just, you know, just going crazy, you I know, waving and smiling. I would have said pre-crucifixion Jesus. Pre-crucifixion Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he I, was I don't probably know. waving and throwing peace signs and shit. Yeah, if you believe he existed, then maybe, yeah, probably before the whole arrested and getting beaten thing. He might have been waving and giving peace signs. Maybe while he was up on the cross, he was just flashing peace signs at people. He was just supposedly. in a BDSM. He, was a little, he might have liked it. Yeah, he might be right about that one. We'll have to do an episode. Okay, now, in all seriousness now here, uh, Marine One, I uh, don't really hear about that too often. Did it, I feel like presidents don't prefer to travel by sea anymore no so marine one is the helicopter it's, oh, it's the, the green helicopter, helicopter that they take to different events like or the airport like if if the president's going to go fly on air force one then they'll take marine one to the airport and then they'll jump on air force one it's just it's like air force one but it's a helicopter and the marines run it rather than the air force gotcha okay inter okay i just figured marine water that's what it did in my head. Oh, no, the Marines. Yeah. Gotcha. Like whenever okay. whenever you would see Donald Trump, like getting off of a chopper and giving, uh, you know, doing a little press conference with the chopper blades like whirling behind him, that was Marine One. That was the green and white helicopter. Okay. All right. I learned something yep. new already. This, of course, is the end of the long tale of Richard Nixon's public life with that faithful helicopter ride on their way home to San Clemente, California, and the swearing-in of his vice president, Gerald R. Ford, the 38th president of the United States. To find out where this turbulent tale began, we have to go back to the early 1900s, to a small lemon farm in California, where a poor Quaker family was about to welcome their second son into this world. What? Lemon farmers? Millhouse is a... The lineage of a lemon farmer. Yes. For a short time, they were on a ranch in California. Uh, it was called a lemon farm. So I just kind of, I like that. So I called it a lemon farm. All right. All right. Yeah. Apparently that was maybe their main crop was lemons. I mean, I, it's one of those things that oranges and lemon, tr like orange trees and lemon trees just grow in people's backyards here. And the bad thing is, if you know one of these people, you're going to get a bag of oranges every year. Kind of sucks, actually. <laughs> Okay, so you are anti-orange tree. Yes, I am okay. anti-people right. I know owning orange trees because they always try to give you a bag of oranges. Gotcha. Oh, like, I can barely use a bag of oranges, like three of them, before they all rot. You know, what am I going to do with a large grocery bag, like two large bags full of oranges? I'll never be able to eat them. So. Just use them There's as not a, enough blue moon. Just, not enough blue moon. <laughs> well, you just use them as a garnish. Possibly. Every single yeah. thing you cook... On your plate, just put like a orange spindle on there to make it look fancy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Richard Milhouse Nixon was born in Yorba Linda, California on January 9th, 1913. 
the second of five sons, to Father Francis and Mother Hannah. His father Francis would eventually, in 1922, open a struggling grocery store, which actually doubled as a gas station in Whittier, California, after the family ranch had failed. Sounds like quick trip. Yeah, uh, I mean, kind of. Back then, I, you got to think back then, gas stations were a pretty new thing. So, I mean, cars Good point. Good car, point. Cars were, like we, we talked about uh, Henry Ford two weeks ago. 1922 was when the Model T was really starting to roll off the production lines. So right in that time frame. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Maybe they could have gas slash like shoe changing or something. Horse petting or feeding or something there too. <laughs> a livery mixed with a gas yeah, station yeah. just to catch 50, the people 50. who haven't gotten a car yet. Yeah. Honestly, just think of it back in our hometown. If any of those gas stations had <laughs> stables, Attached to the gas station, they could service all the Amish there and yes. all the English. That's true. The Amish actually liked to uh, take care of their own horses. But, I mean, honestly, if if you, you know, ran into town to get potato chips and Oreos and one of your horses threw a shoe, you would want to have something like that. See? So, yeah, I can see that. So, I was also going to say quick, too. Uh, I had to look it up. So, Whittier, actually, at the time was a like a very rural area. It's in LA County. It has actually since been absorbed by the city of Los Angeles in what is now like the megalopolis. Yeah. So, but back then LA wasn't as big, of course. Mm-hmm. So this area was still like quite rural. There was not really like the amount of roads running through it like there is now. I feel like I've heard of Whittier. Um, somewhere I know I've, I know I've heard about it or talked about it. Yes. Yeah, I am. Uh, I imagine it's kind of like in Phoenix, how there's like little towns inside the metropolis. Like, you know, you kind of pass through like Tempe to get to Mesa or, you know, Gilbert to get to Chandler. One of those deals. I think it might be kind of like that. I've only been to L.A. once and it was just to like the main like drag on Hollywood. So gotcha. I, I've never really never really hung out in L.A. that much. So gotcha. The Nixons were a very pious Quaker family. And young Richard was said by his mother to be a very hard worker, even as a toddler, doing chores around the family's home. Now, this hard working mentality would transfer right into his education, where he would excel among his peers at Whittier Grammar School, uh, later on going to Lindsay Grammar School, which he attended while living with his aunt, Jane Beeson. So it's actually kind of, it's hard to tell like when he actually moved in with his aunt, because a few of the sources I actually saw kind of gave like different ages, but they were all kind of in that late grammar school era. Okay. So like I'm thinking like maybe fifth or sixth grade. Okay. All right. Yeah. That seems that oh. seems about reasonable. Yeah. While living with his aunt, a teenage Richard would attend Fullerton Union High School for his freshman and sophomore years, where he would actually join the debate team known as the Orders Club and the junior varsity football team. Though as far as being an athletically gifted individual goes, Richard Nixon definitely was not one. Uh, He mostly spent game time with a really good seat to watch all of the games ride in the pine. Though I did read that he was always on time for practice, and when he was at practice, he really gave it his his all. So So he he wasn't like... That school's version of like Gronkowski or something. He he wasn't that he wasn't that good. No, he didn't have uh he didn't have any beast mode moments. Gotcha. I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay. No. So I'd kind of love uh, to see like a Richard Nixon beast quake 
kind of <laughs> run where he's just mauling down everybody, but I he's more of a talker than he is an athlete. Yeah, it is it is always great when you um when you watch documentaries on like really good like running backs or wide receivers and you see them on the field in high school football and it looks like a grown man is out there playing with seven and eight year olds mm-hmm. because they're just so much bigger than all the other kids and they're just basically stiff arming like three dudes yeah. and carrying one guy on his back and on their way to the end zone. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny. Now, from what I read, it's actually kind of a miracle that he was allowed to even play football at all, considering that his family had a lot of respiratory problems and uh, a kind of quite a lineage of ill health. At the age of 12, a spot was actually found on Richard Nixon's lung. This supposedly made doctors warn his parents that he really should not pursue athletics, though it was later determined that it was just some scarring from an earlier bout with pneumonia. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's uh, definitely reasonable. I suppose uh, pneumonia yeah. will scar up your scar up your lungs. Yes. I mean, they were, of course, worried that it was tuberculosis. Yeah. So that's one of the one of the situations that they were always looking for. It's just kind of weird. Like, how many people do you know who have ever like had pneumonia? His family does have a lot of health problems, though. Mm, so okay. kind of runs their genes, maybe. So gotcha. that same year. Uh, in 1925, his younger brother, Arthur, actually died of tubercular encephalitis. Uh, and actually, his older brother, Harold, caught an infection during his youth and was later diagnosed with tuberculosis, which would eventually take his life in 1933. Uh, now, during his youth, Harold actually moved to Pinecrest, Arizona with his mother. Uh, that was mostly to benefit from the dry air. The rest of the Nixon family actually like stayed out in California, but they would make a visit out to Arizona about every six weeks, and they would vacation there during the summer. Now, this is pretty much why Richard Nixon lived with his aunt and attended Fullerton Union High School until later on moving back in with his family. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, uh, man, TB was no fucking joke. This is, yeah. That was a scary, scary illness that haunted the world for, I mean, it still does uh, pop up in certain pockets, you know, around the world still, but... Uh, yeah, man, it's... Th- that, whole, that whole dry air thing, like where they thought it would keep your lungs clear if you had it, like, obviously that's, that's no benefit at all, but like they didn't know what else to do. Yeah, I mean, honestly, they, I mean, think about right now with COVID. Everyone's worried about COVID. COVID is nothing compared to a lot of these things. I mean, there was tuberculosis. There was still some smallpox going around. There was all of this stuff. There was polio. I mean, there there was so much horrible shit that you just had to live with back then. And like 1918, Spanish flu just runs rampant Ooh, through through the world post world war 1 just all of these crazy things and we've i mean we've been we've really you know benefited from technology and you know new ways to fight diseases but we've really been lucky up to this point of yeah. like really kind of avoiding the mass disease that you know uh, all the rest of the world kind of has to deal with and uh, we had to deal with you know 100 years ago so you want to see something scary. There was a there's an episode of Vice where they it's like people who are trying to vaccinate children and stuff in third world countries. And yes. I can't remember which one they have like a huge polio problem. 
and it's like really hard to convince them to that the vaccine's okay and it's not like they're trying to kill them. Uh, yes, because because they have they have beliefs about how the vaccines like hurting them. Yeah, they they don't trust the people giving it to them. We actually when we did that episode on vaccines, we talked a little bit about that. Did we? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I don't. That's always stuck with me when I saw that. It was just like who polio is nothing to fuck around with. No, definitely. And I mean, thank God we don't have to live with it. But yeah, you know, I know it's it's still a terrible thing in a lot of the lot of the world. So absolutely. So Nixon's junior and senior year was spent, like I just said, at Whittier High School back with his family. Uh, He would again join the debate team, which he would actually excel very well at the debate. Uh, He would also join the football team, where, of course, he would not excel. Uh, Though in his studies, he really did become quite the student, also becoming student body manager of the student council in his senior year, also graduating first in his class. Mm. Uh, It has been written about old Dick that he didn't really have a lot of friends outside of his close family. And this, along with a healthy dose of social awkwardness around his classmates and a fumbling standoffishness with his female uh, peers, it would earn him the moniker Gloomy Gus. Well, I'm going to just say this controversial take here. Your nickname's Gloomy Gus. Probably not attracting the opposite sex or the same sex, depending on what you prefer. Uh, yeah, I don't. I at first you were like, he's tearing up the debate club. He's the student body manager. He must be just drowning in pussy. He's, yeah, I, well, he's definitely not. Here's the thing. It's it's kind of this weird. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention it like during his college years a little bit. He is quite a joiner. But most people join these groups kind of to either make friends or meet girls. You know, it's kind of one of those deals. Like there's a lot of dudes who joined theater who don't necessarily like acting. It's just the idea that maybe they'll get a like a role in the play where they get to make out with a girl, you know, (laughs) or maybe they know the girl who's going to get the main part with the makeout scene and they want to try to get that. I mean, that's kind of the deal is you join these groups uh, to their social groups, you know, socialize. He didn't really join them for that. He just kind of like latched on to these groups, but then kind of became, you know, like his own lone wolf in these groups. It's a little weird. You want me to blow your mind right now? So think about this. So nowadays, from what I've heard, kids have like anime club and stuff. Okay. Uh, you, me, and a few of our other friends basically have our, had our own anime club because we would go home from school every day and watch fucking Toonami. You can't, you can't call us going and watching Dragon Ball Z. Look, like, I'm just saying that's, that's what the, uh, yeah. that's what they do. They go after school and watch anime. We literally did that at Eric's house. We went to his house and watched anime. Yeah. They, well, yeah. Okay. It's. I don't think it's quite the same thing. I think they had a little bit more of an intellectual pursuit towards it, but <laughs> we didn't quite. Unless you count us running around with airsoft guns and shooting each other. Yeah. Yeah. We're larping. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Definitely. Real life goldeneye. <laughs> so. So at seventeen, he attended Whittier College, where he would join the debate club. Also making the football team as a freshman, though uh, he would only really get on the fourth string team. Uh, He would also join the newspaper as a reporter. He was a player in the theater. He became president of a newly founded club and 
student body vice president uh, during his junior year, becoming president during his senior year. He would eventually graduate from Whittier, second in his class. This was also while he would get up at four in the morning to drive to Los Angeles to pick up vegetables for his family's grocery store. Uh, He would also help keep the books after school and on the weekends. So he was a pretty busy fucking guy. Yeah, he's got a lot going on. Yes, definitely. You know what? This always reminds me. There was a, a teacher of mine said his dad was a chef, like, you know, chef, cooked all night and whatever. And he yes. would, like, get up super early in the morning to take care of his, I don't know if they're, like, show dogs or some shit like that. Like, he did this every single Ugh. day. So he slept for, like, three hours a night. And I'm just like, he, I'm just like, how do you live like that? Yeah. I mean, if you have if you have one dog that's just a pet, that's just kind of like a lap dog you hang out with, you clean up and shit every once in a while. Like, that's cool. If you have like a herd of dogs that you have, like, you know, take to shows and do all that stuff. Ugh, I just don't want to be friends with those people. <laughs> I, no offense to anyone out there who does that. But, you know, maybe re- rethink your life a little bit. The scariest thing you've ever seen is uh, Steve Irwin on Animal Planet, isn't it? Yeah, he's maybe. got too man, too many animals for you. Too many damn animals. <laughs> I mean, it's that, and it's people, rabbit people, people who keep a lot of rabbits. Okay, uh, oof, all right. Not. You're not a fan of a lot of rabbits. No, like if you have like one or two outside of your house, and you just kind of like them. Okay, whatever. But if you have like twenty of them, and they don't live in cages, and they just shit everywhere in your house, yeah, ugh. Yeah, I think oof, that's a hoarder at that point. Yes, yeah. it is. Okay. But that's what I'm getting at is pretty much a hoarder in that situation. <laughs> all right. But however, even though he was really all over the place, to say the least, just a compulsive joiner, Gloomy Gus did remain with Richard. Uh, it seems that he was always seen at Whittier just being a lonely man, even when he was surrounded by his fellow students and his extracurricular activities. He just never seemed to be part of the group. Maybe he didn't want to be. That'd be my guess. Could be. I mean, he was he there, but had... he, he was there by necessity. Yeah. Well, I mean, if he was just doing all these extracurriculars, kind of, you know, to prepare him for the life that he wanted, then I could see that. But it's also one of these situations where if you're in these groups, you have these things in common with these people already. Like, wouldn't you want to like be able to just talk to them? But maybe, I mean, it was could be the social awkwardness that he just got over later in life. I mean, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. He did kind of like build a persona for himself. Could he be mad because time. the could he be mad because the other students were not Quakers as well? Possibly. I bet mm. they well, oof, this was in the this was post prohibition, I think, mostly. So, well wait, what prohibition ended in uh, I'm not, not sure exactly. This sounds about right. Prohibition would have been, this would have been like the waning days of prohibition. So maybe the, well, I mean, even like prohibition, people were drinking worse than before prohibition, really. So, right, right. Of course, I don't know how it was in Whittier, but I'm guessing in Los Angeles, you could easily get alcohol. Yeah, I would assume so. Yeah. Now, after Nixon graduated from Whittier College, uh, majoring actually in history and government, Richard would move out east to attend Duke Law School, where his hard work and studious nature would, of course, follow, along with 
his hermit disposition and friendless lifestyle, which would continue. Uh, he would actually wake up at five o'clock in the morning to begin studying until class began. Uh, he would work all afternoon at the library doing menial labor until he could really just again begin studying. He would then study till midnight. Uh, he was mostly seen by his classmates, just kind of with his head at a book in the law library. Uh, this was even on Saturday nights. Wow. This guy is a real fucking dork, Phil. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a real... God, kind of just a stick in the mud. You he's know? a real you, fucking millhouse. That's what he yeah, is. He's a, he's a real millhouse. Yeah. yeah. Well, even on Simpsons, millhouse probably would have beaten this guy up. <laughs> like millhouse, even though he, millhouse could be the second biggest loser in a situation. And he would always take that opportunity to beat up the biggest loser. But all right. Well, I guess. You know what? I guess he he must have his eyes on some sort of a prize. That's what I'm going to assume. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. all of this. So. Okay. All right. Now, again, at Duke, just like at Whittier, Nixon was a joiner, becoming a member of the Order of Coif, a national scholastic fraternity for honor law students. Also, Nixon would become tapped to become a member of the Order of the Red Friars, which was a semi-secret society at the University of Duke. Uh, this was actually devoted to increasing the loyalty of Duke students. Now, we really don't know much about society or Richard's time there. But from what I've kind of learned about Dick Nixon doing my research, and I mean, we really can guess he didn't probably fit in that well. Especially a secret society is really just about the underground parties. You know, right. The weird, right. the weird stuff. Lots of butt know. stuff, stuff like uh, that. Yeah. Lots of weird dressing up like an owl and butt stuff. Yeah. <laughs> not that now butt stuff's weird, but not, the yeah, secret, not, but when you, add, when you, not that butt stuff's weird, but when you mix that with a secret society, it gets kind of weird. Yeah. The butt stuff mixed with all of the weird secret society stuff, Yeah, which a lot of times kind of, you know, went into the. Maybe supposedly the dark magic stuff. That's when it gets kind of weird. Okay. So the Crowley shit. Also, like the Order of Co- Coif or whatever. What a weird fucking name. What a weird thing. Yeah, I don't know if I said that name. C O I F. It's just weird. I read it as Coif. Uh, yeah, that's not the that's not the secret society. That's just a national scholastic fraternity. But yeah, it's the Order of the Red Friars, which was the semi-secret society. Mm. It's it it actually disbanded. It it doesn't. It's not really a thing anymore. So gotcha. I it's just weird. Sounds like I, like a mid medieval type of plate armor or something, like a yeah. coif. That's what I that's what I think of. <laughs> yeah. Now there is a lot of speculation on why young Richard was so driven at not only his studies, but also the wide range of extracurricular clubs and teams, which in reality, most students utilize, like I mentioned before, to make friends and find romantic partners. Though Dick didn't really seem to care about any of that, seemingly joining these groups for other seemingly unknown reasons. Uh, He joined the football team in high school and junior college, uh, really, I guess because he liked it. Though as for debate and student body politics, it seemed like he joined those groups for one singular purpose, uh, not to make friends or win accolades, but to aid him in what he saw himself ultimately doing with his life, joining American politics. And scarily enough, 
It seems he joined the theater, not for the love of acting, but to help him form a new persona for himself, different from the gloomy Gus moniker that haunted him. This would be a new, likable, endearing figure who could win hearts and minds, but more importantly, elections. It's a real fucking Ryan Seacrest, this guy here. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't... It's it's kind of interesting. There has to be something like mentally to where you're joining all these things for... I'm just going to say it, kind of a narcissistic per, like purpose. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's solely doing it for himself. To, to be seen as someone in these groups. Yes. Yeah, but it, isn't that kind of weird a little bit? Yeah, I mean, not... I mean, you you study a lot of serial killers. I mean, it's 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 kind of a weird thing. If he wasn't so driven to be a politician, I could totally see him becoming a mainstream serial killer. Honestly, he's kind of got like the more you read into it, you're just like, wow, that kind of lines up with some other people. You know? Well, uh, you know, I'm this is uh, probably not that hot of a take, but I'm pretty certain if Ted Bundy didn't kill people, he probably would have became a politician. Oh yeah, like he was definitely. right on. Like he was right on that path. You know what I'm saying? So, I don't know. It's uh, it is interesting. He had to train himself to become make a More persona. Human. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way of putting it, Phil. I like that. He yeah. he took many years of theater to learn how to become a human. It was really tricky for Millhouse. <laughs> definitely. So while at Duke. Richard took his Spartan lifestyle to the extreme. Uh, as I previously mentioned, he basically studied or worked nearly nonstop from before sunup uh, all the way until midnight. Uh, some of his peers even reported that they had hardly ever seen him smile. Also, they always just kind of seen him crouched over a law book in the library. And when he would be in the library, he wouldn't even really bother to look up at passerbys, even if he knew them. On top of these habits, Nixon also reportedly abandoned all creature comforts while at Duke, living at one point during his time at Duke in an unheated tool shed with cardboard lining the walls. Uh, he didn't really care like, where he sleep or what he ate. Allegedly, he never even had a date during his time at college. Also remember, uh, he was a devoted Quaker still at this time, so no drinking or smoking. Though allegedly, the no drinking would end later on. That's kind of one of the later conspiracies that I got. Uh, possibly, you know, part two. We're going to really cram into that. So. Okay. All right. So he's living like Gary Busey for what reason here? Do we know why he's living in an unheated tool shed? Is this well, like he's torturing himself? Well, I mean, he had to, you got to remember his family is still, uh, you know, very middle class, very working class, I should say. I'm not even sure if they were middle class at that point. Very working class, uh, you know, just family out in California. They probably couldn't afford to support themselves and him. And okay, uh, gotcha. So he did have to kind of live on the cheap and work through college. Got you. Okay. All right. I figured I don't for some reason in my head, I figured he had like a scholarship maybe or something like that but uh, i i suppose that makes sense yeah from everything that i read he he basically had to just work his ass off okay. uh, while at duke remember also without him being there he's not able to help his family's grocery store and gas station like he used to uh his oldest brother 
um, actually died. So it kind of fell on the younger brothers to kind of step up and help. So gotcha. he would have, he would have uh, his oldest brother and one of his younger brothers died. So he would have had two younger brothers who would have to step up in his place. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. So like I mentioned, Richard was not, uh, you know, doing very well with the ladies while at college. Eventually, though, good old Dick Nixon would meet the woman that he would one day marry after he had actually moved back to Whittier, California, after finishing his time at Duke. He graduated from Duke third in his class. So Duke Law School third in your class. Pretty fucking good. Pretty fucking good. Yeah. He worked his ass off for it. So, you know, got to give him that. So this was all while he was working at a small law firm in Whittier. He actually met the girl of his dreams, pretty much, I guess. Thelma Catherine Ryan, nicknamed Pat by her father. Uh, This name actually would stick with her for the rest of her life. She would meet Richard when they were both in the Whittier Little Theater Group uh, when they were weeds in the play Dark Tower by George Kaufman and Alexander Walcott. Not the Stephen King Dark okay, Tower. Like all I right. hope it would be. It would, I, obviously, he's uh, quite a bit younger than uh, old Stephen King here. I wonder if yeah. Stephen King adapted this for himself. I, I don't I, know. It's interesting. The Dark Tower, um, I know it's in tarot cards. It's like one of the bad omens in tarot cards. So I don't know if this is where they're all getting it from or if it's like even older than like that. But I know it's kind of like a dark symbol in a lot of, a lot of history, the Dark Tower. So. Okay. Oh, interesting. Now, Dick drove Pat and her roommate home from practice one night. Uh, he would actually ask if she would like to go on a date with him, to which she replied, I'm busy, flat out mm. rejecting him, uh, though he would persist, to which she would continue rejecting him. Wow. Okay. So such a like a- kind of antisocial guy. He must really like this girl. He's not giving it up. Oh, yeah. I mean, really... You got to think at this time, it's probably got to be the least busiest point of his life. I mean, he's working at this law firm. He's got to be giving it his all. But all the extracurriculars, all the side jobs, all of the studying, he doesn't really have to do anymore. So he probably actually has time for relationships at this point. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Also, I mean, maybe he's trying to, you know, get back some of that lost ground while he was at college. He just never tried. So maybe he's going for it here. Could be. Now, Pat was considered to be quite a beautiful woman. Uh, She was 25 years old, though she was very happy with her independent life. She lived with roommates, and she was actually in her first year of teaching business classes at Fullerton Union High School. Now, Richard, of course, was still the gloomy Gus. He lived above his parents' garage. He worked at that law office, but he really did not want to work there. This was not his dream after getting out of Duke. Really, though, he lived in Whittier, which a lot of people say the reason why he worked so hard was to escape this place. Problem is, he's back. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, it's not the most appealing image for a a bachelor here living above your parents' garage, but... uh... I mean, I could totally see it. I wonder what his strong hatred of Whittier came from. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was just to get out of your one-horse town. I mean, really for a 25-year-old to have a law degree, to work in a law office, uh, just doing what you were meant to do. I mean, even though you don't have a lot of money at this time, he's kind of used to that Spartan lifestyle. So he can kind of still sleep anywhere, you know, kind of live on the cheap. 
But for a 25-year-old, he's doing pretty well. Most 25-year-olds nowadays, you know, live in their parents' basement and they don't have that law degree. So, <laughs> What is the Spartan lifestyle? Are Spartans known for being like it's, nomads or what? It's kind of a thing on a lot of the research I did. It was kind of a, a phrase or a saying that they used a lot. So Spartans were notoriously, they just did without, you know, they were like single-minded for the state kind of deal. So they, you know, they lived a frillless life without frills, really. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, in an effort to spend more time with his new love interest, Pat, he actually offered to drive her up to Los Angeles. This was so that she could spend the weekends with her half-sister. Though often, while she was in the city, she would go on dates with a lot of different male love interests. Uh, Dick would actually drive her up there, drive home, and then drive back on Sunday. He would wait until Pat was ready to go home and then just take her back home. So, so wait, he would drive her there so she can go on dates with other men. Yes. And then drive. Ooh, okay. Um, I'm just going to say this. I guess maybe if this is what he likes, okay, but this kind of makes me cringe a little bit. Yes. I mean, any, it's maybe, I don't know if this is a kink that some, some people might have to kind of have that, you know, that thing that you want that doesn't want you back. Unrequited love, but it's just... I mean, it kind of makes you feel sick to think about how that would feel to be in that situation. Like, yeah. you don't have a lot of self-respect if you do stuff like this. I mean, maybe he really, really likes her, but to keep going like that to like the puppy dog thing, that's yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's uncomfortable to even think about. Yeah, especially I could see if he just didn't have the courage and was like working up the courage to ask her out, but he constantly was getting rejected, fully rejected, 100% on his face rejected. So Mm. it's kind of sad. It's not even like she was stringing him along. She was just using him for rides. Yeah, men and ladies out there, if someone is doing this to you at love interest, uh, maybe reevaluate your situation. Definitely. Now, I think you can pretty much figure out what happens next. Yeah. So six months after Pat and Richard met, Pat would actually travel to Michigan where she would purchase a car, after which she completely 100% broke contact with Richard for a whole three months. That's that's when Richard would actually have to track her down and try to convince her to really just give him another chance. Oh, man, Richard, what is going on here, dude? Oof. Yeah. Is this a picture of her here? Yes. Yeah, I I included a picture of her down at the bottom. She's She's got a very strong chin. Well, I was going to say, she's a very cute girl. I'm not going to lie about that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I can see the chin, though. But uh, but yeah, I think she's a cute girl for 19, what did you say it was, 30? It's... uh, yeah, it's it's 1930s right now. I'm not okay. exactly sure. The thing is, I'm not exactly sure when that picture was taken. I just know that it's when she's in her 20s. Because the part of the article that I was reading kind of had her picture like in that part of the article when they first met. It was in she was 25 when they met. So gotcha. Uh, okay. They actually ended up getting together when she was almost 30. So gotcha. Okay. Eventually, though, Pat would find something to love in Richard, and the two were married in 1940. This was at the historic Mission Inn in Riverside, California, taking place in a Quaker ceremony. Awesome. I've been to Riverside, I believe. 
Yeah, I think I might have actually driven through it on my way to L.A. So Right on. A year later, the newlyweds would move to Washington, D.C., where Dick would find a job as an attorney in the Office of Emergency Management, eventually putting aside his Quaker beliefs of nonviolence uh, to actually join the Navy for the war effort, leaving for training in Rhode Island. Now, after his training was up, the Nixons would be forced to move again. Richard had actually, on his paperwork to join, put that he wanted to be sent to ship or station. Now, in doing this, he kind of just figured that he would be sent to the Pacific to fight, which is kind of what he wanted. However, they would be in for a terrible surprise as the Navy sent them to an unfinished naval air station in Ottumwa, Iowa. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, not good. This is where he served as aide to the executive officer on the base. Now, both Richard and Pat hated this posting dearly and dick would even volunteer at his first opportunity to go off and fight in the pacific war zone the two of them actually left for san francisco as quickly as possible ending their time in iowa may 1943. so richard nixon actually found at the chow hall that they had a posting for any junior officers that wanted to go to the pacific could sign their name and basically be sent there that's how he like got out of Iowa. So he would rather go to war than be in Iowa. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. He would rather face down Japanese uh, 1943. Combatants. So they were just, well, no, 1943, the Americans were just starting, the Americans and the Allies were just starting to turn the tide. So when he actually signed it, America still was not doing very well in the Pacific. But he would rather face that than face the cornfields of Iowa. Mm, yes. Don't blame him. Yeah, me neither. I would I would get my ass, especially they're both Californians. They're not Midwestern people. So. Right, right. Richard would go on to serve with distinction in the Pacific, eventually as an officer in charge of the South Pacific Combat Air Transport Command in Guadalcanal in the Solomons, basically meaning that he was in charge of the sailors who loaded the transport planes for the war effort. Though he was a lot safer in the position he was in as a support officer, rather than being in direct combat, Nixon actually wanted to have some more direct effect on the fight against the enemy, uh, really kind of feeling like his war effort wasn't quite living up to his potential. Dick Nixon would eventually be sent back stateside in 1944, finally ending his time in active duty, 1946. This was after he worked in Baltimore, Maryland for two years, where he handled contract terminations for the Navy because of his experience with law. That sounds like a horrible job. <laughs> Handing people yes. like pink slips, basically. Yeah, basically, I mean, it's 1945, the war is over, so thanks. Go yeah. back to go go back home, kid. Yeah. Uh, thanks for all the help. Oh but, my yeah. god, what a brutal <laughs> job to do. Yeah, you got to remember. I mean, the military is not all fighting. For every one person who actually has a position, like actually on the line, there's a bunch of people behind him supporting him, making sure he gets fed, making sure he gets armed, clothed. All of that stuff, making sure his family back home is taken care of, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of support positions, even during all-out war. So. Right, right. 
Now, this is kind of one of the first accusations against Richard Nixon that came about after he left office and eventual with death. So there is kind of a thing going around where reporters kept it quiet at first, but it turns out that really he had an awful relationship with his wife, supposedly, really throughout the later years during when he was in office. Uh, Though during this time, he and Pat actually wrote each other very often while they were away from each other. When he finally returned from deployment in 1944, Richard Nixon was on the dock. His wife came up in a red dress and in heels. She ran on the dock and embraced him. Really, this display of PDA, the couple was not known for this at all, like during the later years. So very uncharacteristic for this to even happen. There were allegations of Richard Nixon assaulting his wife throughout his political career. They would come to light, like I mentioned, long after his death. So I'm going to get into that in the next episode, during more during his presidency and more during the time of when I start to talk about some of the kind of the crazy theories about like what Nixon was really like in real life, not just his public okay. persona. All right. I mean, if we're being genuinely real, 1940s, 1950s, a lot of domestic abuse was kind of overlooked. Yes, but there is one reporter who did not divulge or did not report on uh, the violence that I guess he had witnessed He said it was more than a smack. I guess he punched her directly in the face on one occasion. So it wasn't just the, you know, you think about the the horrible shit that like the 1950s television had where a man would just kind of like smack a woman on the face. It wasn't that. It was full on like a beating. So I should also mention, though, that this was unsubstantiated from the accounts of the oldest daughter, I guess, flat out denied that there was any of this kind of abuse but it's also one of those deals where a lot of families don't like to talk about this like bring it out in in, you know in the public especially such a public family they want to leave their private shit private right right but i just wanted to you have to mention that at the end that uh, not everyone like correlates with you know what was said about them gotcha so that same year richard nixon would start his political career vying for the 12th congressional seat out of the state of California. He would go up against five-time incumbent Jerry Voorhees. (laughs) Now, before Nixon was actually tapped to take on Voorhees for control of this seat, the Republicans were really trying to find a candidate to challenge the Democratic stronghold. They even suggested General George Patton for the nomination, though Patton would actually send out a press release from Germany, saying that he was going to stay out of politics. Okay, interesting. Mr. Voorhees, love that last name. Hopefully he's not like Jason's dad or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Vor- I don't know if it's Voorhees or Voorhees. It's V-O-O-R-H-I-S. So I kind of think the S might be silent. That's why I said it Voorhees. Let's do the, Voorhees. Uh, his picture is actually a little bit below. You can see him. Wow, he literally looks like a character from Mad Men. Yes, he very much does look like a character from Mad Men. I'm going to put this up on the Instagram. It'll be one of the pictures. He's holding a pipe, and he's he's a very 1950s-looking man. So Yes, absolutely. Definitely. So this election would see the start of what Richard Nixon would become most known for, and that was mudslinging and red-baiting. Now, when the two candidates would face off in a series of five debates— 
Uh, Nixon would claim that a duo of communist-run super PACs were actually backing Voorhees' campaign, which the congressman wouldn't be able to effectively refute, considering one of those super PACs actually was going for him without his knowledge. Now, during these uh, debates, Nixon's ability as an orator definitely shone through, as he caught the veteran congressman off guard many times. So he he fucked him up in as far as you can fuck up someone in a debate. Yes, he fucked him up very well gotcha. in debates. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. So now the communists run super PACs. <laughs> this sounds like something we still hear to this day. Yes, exactly. Vorhe kind of had the table set for his defeat before that, which I'm going to get into. But you got to remember, this was during the Red Scare. It was huge. A lot of Republicans throughout the country were running anti-communist against Democrats. Gotcha. Okay. Now, losing the election to Nixon, 56 to 42%. Voorhees, who was a veteran congressman, alleges that Nixon had very big money backing him in the race. Also, Voorhees would actually get a very late start as he stayed in Washington, D.C. until August, as he kind of had stuff to do as a congressman. Also, the Republican-controlled state Congress had already set the groundwork for the election in 1941, when the Democratic and Union-controlled areas of the 12th District would actually be replaced. And that is with the Republican stronghold of San Marino, which Voorhees didn't even attempt to campaign in because he figured... It didn't matter if he actually stopped there and spoke or didn't speak. The outcome would be the same. It was so Republican controlled. Now, following the election, Voorhees would later claim that there were actually phone calls made throughout the district to voters claiming that Voorhees was a communist. Voorhees would also claim that there was a smear campaign in the newspaper calling him a fellow traveler, which was an old dog whistle for the anti-Soviets. Mm-hmm. Her fellow traveler. Interesting. Yes. Okay. So what did they call this when uh, random numbers call people to like sling mud at a candidate? Don't they have a specific word oh, for that? Robocalls. Robocalls. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, so far, if Nixon was involved in any of this, he's already sounding like an asshole. Yes. I mean, this might have just been the big money. Obviously, the 1941 gerrymandering couldn't have been him. He was he was busy in the Navy at that time. But it, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the speeches he gave was a lot of red baiting. Mm. So he did. He made sure you knew Voorhees was uh, aligned with communists, at least. Gotcha. Or a communist adjacent. Yeah, say. and I'm sure people ate it all up during this time because they hadn't quite learned that uh, people lie a lot. Definitely. Yeah. While in the House. Congressman Nixon would ramp up his red baiting and become famous as the commie hunter that would see him nominated for vice president in 1952. <laughs> now, as a member of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, or more popularly known as the House Un-American Activities Committee, this committee was actually formed in the 1930s to investigate the activities of Nazis and communist organizations in the United States, HUAC had also served as a forum to attack Jews, civil liberties, and labor union activities. Yikes. So kind of a bad history. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, when you belong to something called un-American activities, 
I I don't I don't know. Doesn't have a great ring to it. Yes, exactly. It became known for McCarthyism. Gotcha. Okay. I was going to say I know I know in current times there's probably a group of individuals who love to belong to the House Committee of Un-American Activities. Yeah. I mean, that's all depending nowadays on what you consider un-American activities. Well, you know what I mean. There's definitely some people who think they have the answer for what is American and what is not American. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, in his first term, Congressman Nixon gained prominence during the hearings and investigation of Alger Hiss, who was eventually convicted of perjury. This was after denying that he had turned over State Department documents in the 1930s. Now, Nixon's work on the committee would eventually bring the junior congressman to national prominence and to a re-election and eventual senatorial win. Also, this would see him targeted by former General Dwight D. Eisenhower as his 1952 running mate for presidency. So he just kind of like big dicked his way into a Senate role. Yes. So every two years you need to run for Congress. Basically, he kind of got, uh, from what I read, not bored, but he thought that maybe he was better than like what his role in Congress was. He was kind of uh, needed to stretch his elbows, maybe get into the Senate. So Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. The Senate is the more powerful body than the House. Mm. It would be Nixon's 1950 senatorial race com- opponent, Congresswoman Helen Douglas, who, after being called a communist sympathizer by Nixon, would actually give him his most infamous nickname, Tricky Dick. (laughs) Now, that 1950 campaign would cement the feelings that Nixon had a real mean streak, and it would also label him as an unscrupulous campaigner. Yeah, it's, I mean, Tricky Dick's kind of fun to say, but I'm guessing at this time he didn't want to be called that. No, definitely not. And you got to think, too, he's a young man at this point. He kind of just comes out of nowhere and just blasts onto the scene. And then when you're in a race against him, he'll, you know, use every trick in the book to get ahead. He's a dirty fighter. He'll do whatever he needs to do to, like, Oh, yeah, definitely. He'll definitely pull a Mike Tyson and bite your ear off. Right. Or a Holyfield and headbutt you in the face, (laughs) you know. He's more of a Holyfield. He's more yeah, you gotta a, remember. You gotta remember. Holyfield did but headbutt him in the face yeah. a few times. So he headbutts everybody he fights. Yes, definitely. Um. So yeah, he's a little sneakier. He is more of a, he's more of a um, uh, Holyfield type of a, a politician here. He's very sneaky. Yes. So obviously, he was a good campaigner. He was able to really electrify crowds that he was speaking to. Uh, had the great oratory skills, and he outworked people. But he also just made sure everyone knew that you were a commie. (laughs) Except for him. Except for him, yeah. Yeah, Well, of course. Everyone's a commie except for him. She actually called him a fascist. Ooh, okay. Now, during his bid for vice president, Nixon would be embroiled in controversy as it came out that he had a group of 70 campaign donors, dubbed the Millionaires Club, who were going to be funding his future campaign expenses. Uh, They would actually spend $100 to $500 each. And this was really just to pay for the day-to-day of any political campaign, though Nixon would brush off these allegations, claiming that the only gift that he accepted was a dog for his daughter, which would become known as the Checkers Scandal. (laughs) Okay. Poor Checkers. Is that the dog's name is Checkers? Yeah, uh, if you ever okay. watch Futurama, whenever they have uh, the head of Nixon 
on a robot. He's always yelling at his dog, Checkers. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah. So elites in the party and the opposition actually thought that this was really corny to just kind of like throw your dog out there. But middle America ate it the fuck up and it forced Eisenhower's hand. He was kind of on the fence and then the scandal really was pushing him the other way. But once he gave, he made the uh, checkers comment, it made him go over on the other side of the fence because of how well middle America loved it. You got to remember too, Eisenhower was a New York guy. Uh, he needed Nixon for the West Coast and Nixon also brought him the, the middle America now yeah. with that checkers deal. So he's got to pick him up. <laughs> well, technically checkers brought him yeah. middle America. Let's be, let's honor the dog because the dog Definitely. is the one who did all this work here. Yeah. The dog's the one that got thrown under the bus. Yeah. So yeah. After the 1952 Eisenhower win, Vice President Nixon would actually become probably the most consequential vice president in history. Uh, he would actually start using his talents as a hard worker and administrator to take on more responsibilities than any other VP in history, which the former General Eisenhower really liked in a subordinate officer. Now, he would take on the roles such as liaison between the administration and the Republican Party. Uh, he'd become an ardent Republican campaigner, also an expert on how to navigate the waters of Congress. Really, too, uh, I mentioned him before, he was the main leash holder for Senator Joseph McCarthy, who was famous for the McCarthyism and the, the red hunting, though he would mostly fail at this part of the job. Uh, also, he would become known as a Republican hatchet man or mudslinger for the administration. Okay, not hatchet man like juggalos, though, right? No, not Hatchet okay. Man like Juggalos. Okay. No, he was the one who always, he was kind of, uh, you know how every every group has that little dude who's always just willing to get out there and fight? He was kind of that guy. He was the guy who was always willing to fight. So Eisenhower really, when they were campaigning, he led the clean campaign. Okay. Nixon was the mudslinger. He got out there. He got dirty. So. Okay. He's scrappy. He's scrappy. I think that's yeah. what we call him, a scrappy. Yep, Definitely. Now, after eight years in office, even though Nixon and the Eisenhower administration were really not that popular, Vice President Nixon would ride the success and the uber popularity of President Eisenhower into a 1960 bid for president. This was, of course, against another enigmatic young newcomer, Senator John F. Kennedy. Ooh. Now, President Eisenhower, though he supported him personally, did not publicly endorse Nixon for president until just a few weeks before the election. Now, this was due to a couple of different things. At this time, he was really in ill health. The presidency has a tendency to do that to people. Uh, this is also because of the fact that Nixon, being a lone wolf, wanted to run his own campaign and wanted to do it all on his own. Okay. Now, during an August press conference, reporter Charles Moore of Time Magazine responded to one of Nixon's claims that he actually had a great amount of influence in the Eisenhower administration, he would ask the president, could you give an example of a major idea of Nixon's that you have heeded? Now, the president would respond, if you give me a week, I might be able to think of one. That's not a great endorsement there. No, that is not a great endorsement. So Eisenhower and Nixon would later on claim that it was just a joke. It definitely, though, caused damage to the Nixon campaign because you yeah. got to think that might have made the front page 
but any kind of retraction would be on the back page. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where that's the that's the heat. And nowadays, you can't just put something on social media to backtrack that. So right, right, you've got to depend on the media to help you out. And famously, the media was not going to help out Dick Nixon during this election. No, at all. No, no. I can I can kind of see why he's uh, kind of a dick. Yeah, exactly. And he was known during the. During the 1952 elections, during all of those midterm elections, he was kind of the the big gun that they would send out across the country to get Republicans elected. He was also the chief mudslinger, the chief red baiter. You know, the, he was – they were not going to give him any favors. Also, you got to remember too that whole McCarthyism thing, that whole – the red baiting, the commie hunting really happened to the media as well. Newspapers, movie, television – all like a lot of writers were victims of all of this commie hunting, which mm-hmm. he was a part of. Mm-hmm. So another reason why kind of maybe the media didn't like Nick Nixon as much. And Nixon later on would say to the media that as much basically gotcha. in a very famous quote that I'm going to mention later. All right. But in the next episode, I'll, I'll talk all about it. So Now, during August of 1960, Nixon actually held a slight to pretty decent lead in the polls against a Democratic candidate. Experts were actually pretty positive that he would be able to hold off the newcomer and become the next president of the United States. Though bad luck and some great campaigning from Lyndon B. Johnson in the South would help to pull the race closer. Now, this would lead to four legendary debates of the 1960 election including the first on September 26, which most thought Nixon had lost an embarrassing faction. That is, if they had watched that event on television. And that is where we will leave part one, picking up next week with the first 1960 presidential debate and the introduction of JFK on the national stage. Ooh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, we learned. I learned a lot about old Richard Milhouse Nixon here. I'm assuming next week we're going to be getting more on his nasty side and the conspiracy side. I mean, we learned about his nasty side, obviously, but oh, definitely, y- yeah, you know this what is, I mean. This is this is just the the appetizer for his nastiness. Like, right? It's it's that's all going to be next week. I just kind of wanted this week to get into his history and maybe kind of like where next week's events and next week's kind of theories and myths, maybe or legends, I guess you could say. Uh, what he's infamous for kind of come from this lone wolf, this hard worker, this guy who always thinks that he, he sees enemies everywhere. Just like, uh, Joseph Stalin, who he's apparently very terrified of. Possibly. Yes. I I mean, with the commie hunter. Yeah. Think about it. He's he's calling everybody commies and you know, Stalin was notoriously paranoid of everybody. This guy's seeing enemies everywhere. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, if you, like if you read into Stalin, just just the cliff notes on Stalin, you'd be fucking terrified of him. He was uh he's a bad motherfucker. Yeah. Basically invented photoshopping his enemies out of, you know, real life and in pictures. So just <laughs> he, got him the fuck he's out of the there. The original Instagram influencer there. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was uh, excellent. We learned a lot about Dick uh, you know, Richard Nixon here. Honestly, a lot of what I learned on part one, I'll wait for part two, but a lot I learned on part one, I might lean towards, I think he might have some sort of sociopathness or something about him. 
Yeah. So anyone who actually wants to be president of the United States has to have some kind of like a lot of the people who kind of like you learn about becoming becoming president. Maybe they didn't want to, or maybe they just kind of found themselves in the position, especially during the 1800s. A lot of people were just kind of tapped to become president. Some people didn't even know that they were going to become the party's nomination, the party's nominee until after they were voted in. Oh, wow. It's one of those deals where if you really want to become the president, there might be something wrong with your head. There might be a screw. Right, right. I could see that. And I think there is some screws loose with uh, Mr. Nixon. While I will be anxiously awaiting part two. Excellent job, Phil. Uh, You want to let everybody know how they can reach out and contact us, Philip. Well, if they want to get a hold of us, they can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. We've gotten some good emails over the past few weeks. Thanks for those. Also, we're on Instagram, Subliminal Deception Podcast. Gotten some really good messages. We've actually been talking to a couple other podcasts out there in the podcasting world. So thank you for that. You know, it was great hearing from you guys. Uh, Also, some really good ideas for episodes, which one really good idea on Solomon that I'm going to actually do in a few weeks. I'm going to get that one set up. So a lot of a lot of good stuff out there. Keep it coming. Uh, Cody and I both also have our own Instagrams. Mine is SDPodPhil. I hardly ever check it. Never on there. If you message me on it. Thank you, but maybe hit me up on Subliminal Deception Podcast IG. Cody, you got one? Yeah, follow my personal Instagram at Cody's Above. I post memes and whatever, and we have a good time. Uh, the last thing we need you guys to do is to log on to iTunes and leave a show five-star review if you are an iTunes listener. doesn't really matter what you say. Type in your favorite uh, Richard Nixon moment. We don't really care. Just type something in there. If you're a Spotify user like most of us, you just got to hit that uh, follow button. It's apparently like a review for Spotify helps boost us up the charts. And I have noticed definitely makes a difference when you do that. So thank you to everybody who's left us a review and hit the follow button. Otherwise, Phil, uh, excellent job this week. Learned about a old president, an old president that definitely earned the nickname of Tricky Dick. Definitely. Th- thank you, guys. And we will see you next week. Thanks, guys.